Well, good evening, everyone. And uh, as we continue in our worship, uh, would you join me in reading uh, from the scripture? So let's turn together to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. As we continue our series in Acts. And we're going to read the first 15 verses of Acts 17 together. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus, I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Let's pray. Uh, together. Let's pray over what we've just read. Holy Father, you have not remained silent, nor have you failed to speak to us. We thank you that we have the record of what you have spoken. We thank you for what you've spoken in the passage we've just read. And we pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak afresh to us, You would speak to us each individually. And help us, Father, to respond eagerly to your word. 
And help us to examine the scriptures as the Bereans did. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it is something we do every day. And yet it is something that I think is among the hardest things, the most tricky things we attempt to do as human beings. Just head down to your high street bookstore and you'll see the height of the problem. Because you'll find that the shelves are just stacked high. They are just bulging with books that help you to communicate. Whether it's getting the message across to your boss or your spouse, whether you need to get through to your baby or even your pet cat. Help is at hand to educate and encourage your communication. However, in practically all secular bookshops, conspicuous by its absence are volumes which aid us and help us in what I find to be the most difficult kind of communication. A kind of communication that I think most Christians find most demanding of all. It's without doubt the biggest communication challenge. Communicating with a non-Christian. Speaking to someone who doesn't know about Jesus, about Jesus. Now there is a challenge. And what book is going to help me and equip me for this task? Well, need I remind you that we have uh, one book which supremely equips us. The Bible is, amongst other things, the ultimate instruction manual in evangelism. And the book of Acts within the Bible. The book of Acts is a particularly deep gold mine, a, a treasure chest of resources that equips us for this task of sharing our faith with those who have no faith. So tonight, for example, we're going to glean some lessons from a master gospel communicator, the Apostle Paul. And furthermore, we're going to learn also something of the responsibility of the hearer of the message as well as the speaker of the message. In short, we find assistance for the communication challenge. And this is in Acts 17. I hope you still have your Bibles open this evening as we continue to track the spreading flame. Now, let's just refresh our memories about where we've come to in Acts. We've been tagging along with the Apostle Paul and we've been following him on his second missionary journey. And he's been sent out, you may remember, by a church in Antioch in Syria. I think there should be a map coming up, and it's to the, to the east uh, side of the map. And Paul has been on this trip, accompanied by a colleague, uh, namely Silas. And already this pair of gospel proclaimers have put many miles behind them. Uh, they've been preaching the gospel truth in several towns and cities. First of all, they came to Derby, that was the first stop, uh, followed by Iconium, and then on to Troas, uh, as they came up to the coast, and then over the Aegean Sea, most recently, 
they arrived in Philippi in modern day Greece. And therefore the gospel has now extended out into the continent of Europe. And yet we discover that even as new ground is broken for the kingdom of God, we note, however, the same old twin themes which have been recurrent throughout the book of Acts. First, that wherever in Europe Paul and Silas preach, there is success in terms of the progress of the gospel. People become Christians. Churches are established. That is on the one hand. But then we also discover, uh, concurrently with this, that even as the, the church is rising in these new towns, in these new cities, so also the persecution and the opposition to the gospel is arising. Only this morning we heard, didn't we, of how Paul and Silas feared in Philippi. And we saw, first of all, how they established a church in Philippi. Praise God. And then, however, we discovered they faced some severe opposition. They were severely beaten and they were thrown in prison for their faith. See these twin themes? Productivity and persecution. Success and suffering for the gospel. And these twin themes indeed follow us all the way into Acts chapter 17. As Paul and Silas continue sharing the gospel with costly success. Now this time, it is in the town of Thessalonica. You see it to the top left hand side of the map. Thessalonica was about 100 miles uh, from Philippi. And uh, Paul and Silas head down this road, probably by foot. And again, this is after a fairly severe beating that they do this. Thessalonica was a Greek harbour town, or maybe I should even say a city. Some estimate it was around 200,000 in its population. And it's here in this Greek city that we learn our first raft of lessons in terms of communication. And I want to suggest to you that these lessons revolve around what we might call message transmission. Message transmission. See, if you think about it, there are two reasons and two reasons alone why communication fails. On the one hand, there can be a problem with the receiver of the message. On the other hand, however, there can be a problem with the transmission of the message. Just a couple of weeks ago, we uh, discovered yet again that our internet at home wasn't working. And I'm not much of a whiz with these things, but I tried to figure out what the problem was. Uh, And eventually, I sort of hit a brick wall and phoned up the service provider. And they told me, this was the first time this had happened, there was a problem at their end. There was a problem, not with my modem, but a problem with the transmission of their signal. And you know, so it can be in our gospel communication. The reception can be as good as you like. The non-Christian audience can be as eager as you would ever wish them to be. And yet, if our transmission is fumbling and failing, then the communication will necessarily fail, tragically. And therefore, we need to learn, I believe, from the likes of Paul, the Apostle. However good we are, or however bad we are, in terms of transmitting our faith, there is much to learn 
from the Apostle Paul. Someone who, I think, exemplified a near-perfect transmission of the Gospel. An absolutely clear signal, a crystal clear communication of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what was this model method, let's call it that, this evening? We find it in verses 1 to 4, if you're looking at the Bible in front of you, as Paul goes into the synagogue in Thessalonica. As was his practice, he went first to the Jew and only then to the Gentile. And here's the first thing Paul does. Here's the first thing he does in his communication. He proclaims. Paul proclaims the message. Look at verse 3. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. The word proclaim has the idea of announce or herald. And just as I'm doing this, someone's going to have to come and help me with my mic. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Peter. A communication problem, you're right. Uh, It has the idea of proclaim of uh, announcing, a sort of a town crier kind of thing. And this is the first reason why Paul's communication was clear, because he declared the message of the gospel. You notice what he said? He said that Jesus is the Christ. The Christ, uh, that's the Greek term for the Jewish term, Messiah. And the Christ or the Messiah, this was the long-promised Savior. He was promised in the Old Testament part of the Bible. He would come and he would save God's people. And Paul says, Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. And notice what he adds. He says that this Jesus Christ is a suffering Christ, and he is one who has also risen from the dead. Now, this is Paul's declaration, and this indeed is the declaration of the gospel, is it not? This indeed is at the very heart of Paul's message, wherever you come across it in Acts, wherever you come across it in his letters. It makes me think of over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You remember when Paul is writing to another Gentile city. Here he's speaking to Jews, but in 1 Corinthians, he's talking of the message he took to Gentiles, and it was just the same message in verse 3 of chapter 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. These are the core events at the heart of the gospel. And Paul never altered this message. You say, now wait a minute. Uh, Isn't it true that in Acts, Paul sometimes took different approaches when he spoke to different audiences? Didn't Didn't he take different lines of of approach, well this is in some senses true he often utilized different styles but he never preached a different gospel just consider uh, it when we come to it next Sunday night God willing in Acts when Paul preaches in Athens and it's a completely different audience they're not Jewish by background they're, they're Greek, they're pagan and we find that Paul's line of approach is therefore very different he doesn't take them through the Old Testament they didn't know the Old Testament No, he he finds touch points as he talks about uh, God and creation and the idols and so on. 
But again, if you look at verse 31 of this chapter, lo and behold, Paul lands on the same spot. And he preaches about the resurrection of Christ. Verse 31. The resurrection which also implies the death of Christ. And he's speaking to Gentiles. Because it was the same gospel. Because the gospel has a definitive content. And therefore, brothers and sisters, this is the first aspect of our communication. If it would be clear, we have to know and we have to be able to communicate and we have to be courageous enough to communicate the essential gospel. If we cannot do that, if if you're sitting this evening saying, well, I can't do that, make sure you work on that this week so that by this time next week, you can do that. If you're a Christian, you're already halfway there. Because you must know the gospel in the first place to be a Christian. So you already know the gospel. Maybe the problem is simply in communicating it simply to people. There are lots of resources that can help you with that. Two Ways to Live is an excellent little booklet that helps you to summarize the gospel. Very simple. There's no, real, there's no excuses, really. You say, I'm not very dynamic. Let me ask you this. Do you find the newsreaders on the evening news, 6 o'clock, 10 o'clock. Do you find them dynamic? I don't. But you know what they do? They simply read the news to me. And that's all I need. Every Christian should be willing and able to read the gospel headlines to others. Non-Christian world needs their proclamation, but that is not all. Notice also a second thing Paul does. He proclaims, but he also persuades Look at verse 2 there. He, He reasons with them. Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them. Now, the the Greek term here for reason is actually a word from which we derive the English term dialogue. It maybe doesn't mean exactly what we often mean by dialogue, but you see what it's kind of saying. He interfaces with his audience. He not only declares an unchangeable message, but then he gets down out of his pulpit and he interacts. And this is very interesting, very interesting in much of the discussions and debates that are going on today because you hear these two different lines of evangelism. And some people say, well, the way to communicate to a non-Christian world today is simply to confront them. Simply to tell them that there's a definite gospel that Jesus died, that he died for their sins, that he rose from the dead, that you need to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's all that we need to do. And then you have this other camp, and they say, well, you know, this is much too confrontational today. Uh, We need to get off of our box stands, and we need to sit in coffee shops with people, and we need to spend hours upon hours hearing their questions and, you know, sharing perspectives. And yet notice Paul walks right along this tightrope. He both declares the message of Christ in his unalterable form, but then he becomes, in a sense, malleable to the concerns and questions, to the objections and problems. He knows his audience will have with his message. I mean, just it's interesting, isn't it, in verse 3. It's significant what he discusses with them. He discusses the fact, he's explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer. Why did he discuss that with them? Why was that the issue? Well, 
Because this was the issue that a Jew would have with his message. Paul knew that. that most Jews believed that the Messiah could not suffer, would not suffer. The Messiah, when he would come, would be a victorious figure. He would defeat all of his foes. He would not suffer, never mind die. And so Paul knows they won't simply accept his declaration just because he says it. So he seeks to prove this point to them. It's interesting, isn't it? Paul doesn't give up and go in the huff. Paul doesn't say, well, if you're not going to accept my message, you can like it or lump it. He gets alongside them, and over three Sabbaths in a row, he dialogues and he debates and he takes them to the Scriptures and he carefully explains and proves from the Scriptures that the Scriptures do in fact teach a suffering Messiah. Have you ever checked out Isaiah 53? He might have said to them. Have you ever read about the Messiah in, in Isaiah 53? The servant of the Lord, he is a suffering servant. He was bruised for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. And using this objective evidence in the Bible, he seeks to persuade them. Notice, it's not manipulation. He's not manipulating their emotions here. He is marshalling the facts of Scripture itself. And he is pushing them for a verdict. Paul's dialogue was always with the aim of persuasion. And by the way, I think that marks what Paul was doing out from some of what is called dialogue today. Because dialogue is such a refined thing to do, you know, in the 21st century. Especially in religious terms. And people come, you know, you get a Buddhist on the one hand and a Christian on the other, and they sort of both share their ideas, and they interface with each other, and it's a very respected thing. But actually, quite a lot of it is a dialogue of the death. Where I share what I believe, and you share your perspective, and we both understand each other a little bit more, and what each other believes, uh, and it's all lovely, and we have a nice cup of tea afterwards. But there's never the slightest expectation that actually anyone might change their mind about what they believe because of what they hear. You see, information is the goal. Good relationships are the goal. Persuasion is not the goal. But Paul had the goal of persuasion even as he dialogued with the concerns that people had. This is the model for us. Paul declares and he discusses, he dialogues. Here's the obvious question for us to see. Is this a model that we follow in our evangelism as a church and as individuals? Do we see a mirroring of Paul in the way that we interface with our non-Christian friends? Or let me put it this way. Do we proclaim and persuade? Do we persuade and proclaim? Here's my suspicion, and I might be wrong with this. I think that most of us are more comfortable with one than with the other. And I think probably very few of us are actually good at doing both of these things. Some of you, if I said to you after the service, let's go out to the street corner uh, on Rose Street and uh, let's just trumpet the gospel to anyone within shouting distance. You know, you'd be right there with me. uh, Because you're right into the declarative uh, proclamation of the gospel. 
But if I said to you, uh, how about uh, you actually follow up with an unbeliever over a three-month period and interface with them about any questions they have, you know, about hell and about uh, other religions and all these sorts of things. You know, you would turn blue in the face at that thought. On the other hand, some of us maybe are more coffee shop people than street corner people. And we just love to, to, to relate and dialogue and interface. And yet, the months pass and sometimes we think to ourselves, I never seem to get around to actually sharing the heart of what I believe. And saying, you know, this is the gospel message and actually, I really do believe this is true. Objectively true. Do I need to add proclamation to my persuasion or persuasion to my proclamation? It's this combination that provides for an effective gospel transmission. Note the response that Verse 4, many were persuaded, convinced about Paul's message. And yet, as always happens, uh, even with the clearest transmission of the gospel in the world, others reject both message and messenger. Some jealous opponents in verses 5 to 9 stir up a riot in Thessalonica. They haul a man named Jason, who was housing Paul and Silas before the council courts, uh, they can't find Paul and Silas at this juncture. And they accuse Jason of aiding and abetting some troublemakers. And even of defying Caesar himself. Because they are proclaiming another king named Jesus. The long and short of it is that Paul and Silas have to leave Thessalonica. Indeed, it's probably the case that when it says that they were released on bail, uh, that they posted bond, giving assurances that they would make sure Paul and Silas left the city. Well, Paul and Silas have to leave, but this only results in further gospel progress. Leaving by night, Paul and Silas travel the 40 or so miles southwest now to the smaller town of Berea. And here they continue to do what they always do, proclaim the gospel and persuade non-Christians. But notice, as we come to this, Notice that our attention is flipped from the transmission of the gospel to the reception of the gospel. This is the second point, message reception. See, the Bereans, we're told, they were better receivers of the word than the Thessalonians. Indeed, verse 11 is one of the more famous verses in the Bible for this reason. The Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now let's first of all deal with what this verse does not mean. This verse is not saying, I don't believe, that the Bereans were somehow morally superior to the Thessalonians. I mean, that is how you could read it. They were of a more noble character says, look in this account. Uh, not only would the whole of Scripture have a tug of war with that interpretation, because none of us are worthy of the gospel Scripture teaches, but actually, if we read verse 11 carefully, notice that their nobility is defined, not in terms of their morality, but their receptivity. Why were the Bereans more noble? Because of their eager reception of the message. Not the righteousness of their character, but the keenness of their reception. They received the message, verse 11, with great eagerness. Now this, 
idea, eagerness, is this thought of, of rushing forward towards something. It's the idea of a crowd, I'm putting this in modern terms, pressing forward at a rock concert or something of that nature. And they're, they're pressing towards the stage. So the Bereans were pressing forward day by day by day to hear the message that Paul and Silas preached. They could not wait to receive God's word. Now, this does not mean that they were naive. We're going to see that. Receptivity does not equal gullibility, necessarily. It does not mean, says James Montgomery Boyce, one commentator, it doesn't mean that they simply believed everything they heard. It means that unlike those in some other cities, these people were open to the gospel and had not prejudged it. This is a problem with many people today, sadly. They have already prejudged the gospel before they have considered the gospel. They've already written it off. Christianity and whatever it believes is wrong. Though, in fact, if you quiz at least some such people, they don't really know what Christians believe. What the gospel actually is, they haven't the, the foggiest clue. Maybe just a, a carnival mirror interpretation drawn from some atheist critic with an axe to grind. And this sort of seeps through, this prejudging enmity. You can tell, can't you, when someone doesn't want to be confused with the facts. Uh, you say to them, I don't think I've ever really shared my gospel faith with you. Could, could I tell you the good news that I believe? Uh, and, and immediately the frown comes on the brow and they say, I don't want to hear your message. And you say, why not? What's, what's your problem with the gospel? And I say, well, the Bible, you know, it's full of inconsistencies. And you say, really? Uh, could you tell me which ones in particular you have a problem with? And their face suddenly, you know, the frown goes and they turn chalk white at that point, uh, because they don't have a particular one in mind. And they say, well, I don't know of any in particular. I just know that there is a bunch of contradictions and that all Christians are hypocrites and that the Bible is a lie. Well, there's fair-handed objective reasoning for you. Rejecting a claim before considering the evidence. I say this a little facetiously, but seriously, non-Christian friend, are you giving the gospel a fair hearing? Are you really heart on heart, open, open to at least consider objectively the claims of the Christian faith? It at least deserves your openness, your eagerness. And can I ask my Christian brothers and sisters this evening also, how eager are we to receive God's word on a day-by-day basis and on a weekly basis here on a Sunday? I mean... Here are some non-Christians, and they are rushing forward to hear the message. Let me ask you, are you rushing into Charlotte Chapel this evening? Uh, Just because you're here doesn't mean you're eager to hear. You know what I mean? Many Christians endure the sermon every Sunday, if they're honest. And they're sort of counting with their watch. How long is he taking this time? It's true, the preacher has work to do in the pulpit. But note this fact, and I believe this is testified all over the New Testament especially, it is not the job of the preacher to make you interested in the message. The preacher's job is to be faithful and clear, to be biblical, 
and understandable. And it is the hearer's job to be eager. That is your job. That's my job when I'm sitting down in the pew and someone else is preaching as well. In the parable of the soils, remember that Jesus told, and there's four soils, where does Jesus place the responsibility for the success or failure of the sowing of the seed? Is it with the sower? Is it with the seed? It is with the soils. It's the soils that make the difference. It's how you hear that makes the difference. I have a responsibility every week to come with the right sort of attitude to hear God's Word. You know, when I realize that, my whole attitude towards sermons changes. I cease to be a spectator. You know, I cease to be either sitting, looking for some kind of entertainment, on the one hand, or on the other hand, I cease to be a sort of sermon critic, just marking down every little bit of style that I don't like. Because I'm so busy working on what I'm going to learn from the sermon. And you know, even when I have this attitude, I can sit through a fairly sterile sermon and still learn something. Some of you might have had to do it over the years. I remember doing that once or twice in my past experience. Well, the Bereans were model receivers because of their eagerness. But notice complementing this, something more, their careful examination of the Scriptures. Look at verse 11 once more. They received the message with great eagerness and This is why they were not naive. They examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now just imagine this dynamic that's going on in these hearers. Incredible. On the one hand, the Bereans have got their notepads out, you know, their pens poised, ready to jot down what God's word is saying. They're there, you know, first at the start of the service. They're last to leave because they're praying over the message. They're really eager. But on the other hand, they're not gullible. And one of the things that they're doing after every sermon and as they go home to their houses is they're checking their Bibles and they're checking up on what the preacher said. I wonder how many of you, whether even I, do that. They're checking it up. The, The word here, examine, was a word used in the first century in the courtrooms. An examination here means an unbiased investigation to get at the truth. So they didn't even take what Paul said. And Paul was an apostle. They didn't take it for granted. As read. Even what Paul says doesn't carry forth simply because Paul says it. What an example. Here's the kind of obvious thing to tease out here. Never, 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 never simply take the preacher's word for it. And especially, and I think this is uh, maybe the temptation, especially if you have some favorite preacher or favorite writer, and it's the guy that you quote to all your friends, you know, John Stott says, ah, but Lloyd Jones says, or whoever it is, some of you don't even maybe know who the those folks are. Be very careful of that kind of thing. Because, respectfully, even John Stott only has one authority, and that is the Scriptures. And my teaching, and Peter's teaching, and any other teaching that you hear, with the context of this building, must be examined. 
Don't simply take the preacher's word for it. Take the Bible's word for it. And here's a, a corollary of that. Uh, always, always, always keep your Bible open when someone is teaching you the Bible. Which is why I was encouraging you to do that earlier. Maybe some of you want to reopen it at this point. Beware of assuming that what you are hearing is the Bible. The only way you can check that is by examining the Bible. And I say this not because I think that, you know, you need to be suspicious of everything that's necessarily being said in this pulpit. I certainly pray not. But I say this because, as you hopefully know, there is, in fact, a lot of nonsense out of there. Out there. We were in our uh, team meeting on Thursday, and Rodney Stout was uh, doing some devotions for the staff, and he, he had a, a glossy leaflet. And these leaflets are uh, from a new church plant in Edinburgh, and they're getting distributed around churches and and they were trying to get them, I think, into Wesley Owen, these leaflets. And it's promoting this church, but, but worse than that, it's promoting certain ideas, particularly ideas of prosperity. You know, prosperity gospel, become a Christian, and God's will for you is you're going to be rich. But I think even more disturbing was the part that Rodney read from within this flyer, where the, the, the spokesman of this church said, uh, the Bible says... And this is the thing, people always say, the Bible says uh, that it is not God's will that you should get ill. And it was just incredible. He actually said in this leaflet, he said, and I never get ill. Because it is not God's will for me to get ill. The Bible says it, therefore I don't get ill. I mean, I'd love to sit in this congregation every week and see if he's got a sniffle of a cold. I say, ah, I got you. A lot of nonsense out there. Well, but let me ask you this. How would you be able to actually show that you were right in what you think and he was wrong in what he thought? Listen, there is only one authority, and that is the Scriptures. Understanding what the New Testament says about sickness and healing and all these sorts of things from James chapter 5 and the rest of the, of the epistles and, and Acts. The Bereans were, here's my little phrase for you maybe to write down, they were eager examiners. Eager examiners of God's word. That's what God wants us to be. And as Paul persuasively preaches, and as the Bereans eagerly examine Scripture, a similar result takes place to that in Thessalonica. On the one hand, some believed. Encouraging, isn't it? That whenever we faithfully preach God's word, some believe. Sometimes not as many people as we would love to see rushing forward. But some believe God is faithful. Again, as Peter was saying this morning, this is a mix of people. This is emphasized through chapter 16 and 17 of Acts uh, that it's, it, it's people from all sorts of backgrounds. Jews, Greeks, and once more it is underlined some prominent women. Gospel is reaching not just the poor, it is also reaching the prominent as well. You know, if you've got a lot of cash in your Pockets and in your bank accounts, even in this credit crunch, the gospel still is for you. It's not just for the poor. Well, some believed, however, others rejected the message and messenger just as before. In fact, it's the same lynch mob that come all the way from Thessalonica. They hear that Paul and Silas are preaching up a storm and they say, let's go and kick up a storm of our own. And they start stirring up the same kind of chaos but the believers this time think it is wiser to immediately send Paul away before conflict really erupts. 
And so Paul is sent to the coast where he boards a ship. And we'll pick that up next Sunday night. He goes to Athens. And he leaves Silas and Timothy, his two colleagues, to consolidate the church and to encourage these new Christians. Once more, we see that where gospel communication is clear, there is both productivity and persecution. Sharing the gospel is both the highest call and it is also the most costly call we will ever take up. Well, that's the communication challenge this evening. I wonder how tonight you're going to respond to what you have heard in this message, in this sermon. I remember when I was about, I think, five years old, I just started school, and uh, my parents were, I didn't really much about this at the time, but they were concerned about some speech problems that I was having. And there were certain, there were about three or four different letters, and I just couldn't say them properly. And so they sent me after school, a couple of uh, weeks, months maybe even, and we worked on those speech problems. I wonder as you go this evening, I wonder whether what you need to work on in the next couple of weeks and months is in fact some speech problems. I wonder if that's the issue as we've been looking at this passage tonight. It is in terms of speaking God's word that he is challenging you this evening. Maybe it's the issue of proclamation of the gospel. There are resources that can help you. We would love to point you to those things and even to meet up with you and say, hey, share us the gospel in two minutes and we'll give you some feedback. Maybe it's persuasion. Maybe it's really hearing people's objections. If it is something in terms of speaking that God is challenging you about tonight, maybe even now you would like to just bow your head and begin to pray over these things and just take those concerns to the Lord because for you, it's a speaking challenge that's part of the communication challenge. Maybe tonight it's not a speaking problem though, it's a hearing problem. Maybe you're not a Christian at all. Maybe you've heard again and again the declaration that Jesus died for your sins, that Jesus rose to life again, that Jesus is calling you to turn your life around and to put your trust, your whole faith in Him. And maybe up to now, if you're honest, you've had a pretty belligerent attitude to that. Maybe tonight God is opening your ears and he's opening your heart to receive the message. Maybe you need to be persuaded. Perhaps you need to come along to the Christianity Explored course, which, by the way, is a wonderful combination of declaration from the front and then dialogue in the groups. Examine the scripture for yourself and see for yourself if what it says about Jesus is true. Let us pray together. And rather than me just bossing the prayer time, why don't you perhaps bring a few of your concerns, whatever he's been speaking to you about to him in these moments. Father, help us to be good soil this evening. Help us to quickly apply what we have heard. 
We pray that you would help us to apply it so that the evil one would not snatch away the seed of the word. Help us to be hearers and doers. And help us also to be speakers of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in conclusion, we're going to sing a song that uh, speaks of standing on the sure foundation of the word of God.